Britflix podcast comes absolutely free. So can I ask a favour? I urge everyone to go over to my iTunes page, Stitcher page, SoundCloud page, or Spotify page, or whatever podcast medium you're using to listen, and please rate and review us. You can just rate us. They all have star meters, which can be clicked on in absolutely no time at all. Just click on it and you're done. And it'd be really helpful. Trust me. The higher the star meter, the more reviews we get, the more ratings we get, the more the Britflix.com podcast goes up the charts. Please, please, please. Come on, I'm begging you now. Everyone listening, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or Spotify pages, type Britflix.com podcast and rate us. And if you've got a little bit more time on your hands, why not review us as well? Just two or three words of praise will do the world of good. It's really simple and really quick. Now on with the show. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. Frightfest preview series 2019. And today's guest is Braden Croft. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely my pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. There is this... There is this um, I get a list of, every, all the, of contacts for all the films that are playing at Fright Fest from Greg Day, one of the four horsemen of the, of the Fright Fest apocalypse. And uh, I then go to work emailing everybody. I never, it's like there's this, there's this moment of silence where I go, will I do any podcast this year? Will I do any? And then, thankfully, people respond and say, oh, we'd love to come on. So it's really, it's just, my exciting bit now is to get to speak to the filmmakers. So it is very much my welcome. Um, so, we've come to talk about your film, which is called True Fiction, which is playing at Frightfest. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes so people can get the uh, tickets, details, times, places. But uh, so we can give them an incentive to go and look for it. Do you want to give the audience a brief synopsis to what True Fiction is about? Sure. So, True Fiction is a, it's a two hander psychological thriller slash horror film. But a young woman that gets uh, a job as a writer's assistant. So she's basically in a misery scenario where she's um, she's whisked out to a cabin in the remote wilderness, and she's going to help him write his book through uh, a psychological experiment to kind of inspire him for what true fear is. And then, of course, everything goes bad to worse, as the genre would dictate. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, so before we go into details about where that idea, what dark places in your mind this comes from, um, it's the 20th anniversary of Fright Fest, and I'm asking everybody to uh, sort of give me a give me a relay me a story or a memory of being 20, the 20th birthday, anything you want. What 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 springs to mind for you with that? If I, if I raise that question, actually, 20 is like the the age where I really crossed over into the grim reality of being an adult. <laughs> I just graduated film school in Vancouver, Canada. Yeah, and. Yeah, started my first jobs at a production um, office, and quite literally the first day, I screwed up a coffee order and was punted. <laughs> I was fired then, and uh, that was like, yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't so it wasn't so abrasive as that. It was more I didn't get a call back. Oh wow, it's a hard, yeah. it's a tough world out there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it coincided with uh, you know the recession and. It was just a perfect storm of shit, and it made it the next ten years pretty difficult. <laughs> well, so that's me. At go on, sir. Sorry, I was going to say well, that was my story at twenty. It was. Uh, I would not relive it had I the chance to go back again. Right then. So you wrote and directed uh, True Fiction. 
Um, and that means that I can start at the beginning of the journey, I suppose, with the way we talk about it. So let's let's talk first then about what was what for you was the kind of beginning of this idea. Where where what was the spark that that kicked your brain into gear that that resulted in true fiction being a script? Good question. Um, my first film, Hemorrhage, uh, about my early twenties, I got to go to Fantasia, mm-hmm. and I. I Soaked in all the the films there it was my first step into the festival world, and right away I was thinking, you know, the successful films had very small casts, very limited locations, um, small budgets, so they they maximized their production value. And from that, I immediately started brainstorming these ideas. So it came from a very practical point. Yeah. Uh, you know what what could I do? How intense can I make a film in a limited location with two people? Of course, true fiction has a few more than that, but that was kind of the main inspiration is pick the genre, get two people, put them in a room and see how far you could take it. Okay, then. So so that that's a very pragmatic view. So from that pragmatic constraint, where did the uh, where did the story bleed out of that? Right. Uh, I've always well, obviously, I'm a genre fan and. Movies like Robert Weiss's The The Haunting uh, just studies a fear that didn't necessarily pigeonhole itself into one sub subgenre of the, um, say, horror genre or psychological thriller. Mm-hmm. I really wanted a lot of elements from different things. So, of course, you look at what inspires you. I mean, Hard Candy was a big, uh, big film for me. Misery was another. And, and then from there, you kind of work on subverting it you know what what could you give the audience that they haven't seen before or if they've seen it before how could you do it in a new way that feels fresh so that was a huge driving factor for the components so in a way i I was kind of gathering ingredients i didn't have an overall message that i really had to say Mm -hmm. but as i workshop the script and you find your characters and they it's really exciting when they have a life of their own because then you start to feel like oh this is what the story is about and Luckily for me, I, I'm not very good at bringing a topical subject into a film. I really just kind of hope the film blossoms into its own thing. But it did hit a pretty topical note uh, as far as abuse of power goes. Um, a lot of changes in the industry around the Me Too movement started to subconsciously kind of leak into the film. Mm. And I think, yeah, I think it's all for the better because, frankly, I, I could watch genre films made any year. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about communists in the 50s you know, the Red Scare or things now, it's, is it a good film first and foremost? And that's kind of what I went in trying to build that story and execute it on that level. And just you kind of cross your fingers to hope you come up with something more than the sum of its parts. Yeah. And also, and also there's, there's always that thing about, cause your eyes and ears are open to what everyone's talking about. It, it, the, a, there's the subconscious, like you say, but B, there is, there is, there is a, there is a kind of shortcut to go in, yeah, it's obviously influenced by that, or yeah, it's on. and even even when you look at older films and then look at them today, you go, well, you could read that film as a as a as a Trump satire. Yeah, it could be made decades before him, um, you know. So horror, horror, and, and film generally, I suppose, always has that kind of always has that kind of malleability. But it's great that for yourself, I mean, looking at the synopsis when you talk about it, yeah, I can see how as 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 Me Too's raging. Um, and the industry begins to change. The idea of of literally playing out a horror scenario, which which illustrates how how bad or how wrong the notion of 
power play can be is obviously a fun thing to do with drama. Exactly, exactly. And another big thing that kind of runs parallel to that was if any message was in my head, I really, around that time, I was really questioning the art versus the artist and if you could separate the two or if you have to reconcile it on some level. Uh, I mean, I'm a big Woody Allen fan and a lot of, I mean, Roman Polanski is another. Hmm. I love films. And whether you agree with what they do or not, I don't think anyone would agree with that. But how do you reconcile that as an artist versus a person watching a film? Mm. Uh, so that was that. Yeah, I, I loved in true fiction. I was like, if can I build two characters where you feel one way about one of them, feel another way about the other and then swap it, add some humanity, add some subversion. And how do you feel coming out? So I'm not sure if that's to the detriment of the film, but I think a lot of people were. We're probably appreciative that it wasn't so one-sided or it wasn't so, um, well, one-dimensional. When you say you workshopped, are you literally sort of playing with, with basic ideas and got actors in a room with your playing or, or even the actors you got for the film to develop it? Or are you saying you, you were writing up your stuff and getting feedback on it? Yeah, it was more strictly on the writing uh, notion of it. I live in Alberta, Canada, so it's kind of removed from the hub of the film center. I mean, we have a small one here. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have the actors at my disposal, which would have been great because I, I do have contacts in Vancouver and all these great people that I would love to work through. But it's really just me at the typewriter. And I, I'm a huge screenwriting geek. So when I say I have hundreds of books, it's literally embarrassing. I do have hundreds of books that I study continuously. And it's what you may... You, pull up a brand new book like on this one it was a brand new book that really spoke to me and I was like I'm gonna develop this script top to bottom and workshop it through this person's theories on how you should write a screenplay and it was actually really great <laughs> can you can you name that book yeah I'd love to I'll plug it um it's P Pilar Alessandra's uh what is it called the coffee break screenwriter I have I have that very text yes Pilar Alexander's podcast uh, on the page is a, is a cracker oh it's fantastic i listen to it all the time so i i <laughs> i'd love to get in contact with her to just kind of tell her hey watch this movie it's like directly the result of your your writing so that was a huge help so <laughs> if it's if it's largely a two-hander mm -hmm. um and you're in an isolated location and like you say you you sort of took inspiration from other genre stuff you saw that that was like right here we go the to maximize what you can get for your, you know, your dollar spent rolling the camera, then really contain the film. Um, having, having such a limited location as the mainstay of your film, um, what was your conversations like with, with Ian Lister, your DOP, about, about how do, you know, the, like the, the basic question of how do we keep this interesting then? Yeah, yeah, that was a huge thing. I think on the page that, that was the first thing I tackled with is how can I make each scene its own location? Hmm. Um, and some of the, some of the pivotal places in film are kind of their own set pieces. I mean, would, would you call it a study or a library? Hmm? The main film I think is about 40% in that location, which is its own thing removed from the house that we shot at. So we built a studio inside this tiny little shed and that became its own thing. So Discussions with Ian, which, by the way, I could not recommend the guy more. He's utmost professional, amazing DP. Hmm. Um, speaking to him, we nailed the tone. And I really, I guess to answer your question, how do we keep it engaging? We trusted in the writing. Right. But we also make 
we had to sew this location. The location was key. Originally, we wanted a Victorian uh, or a Gothic mansion of sorts. Right. But there's no such thing uh, in Alberta. We do not have anything older than like the late 1800s. So good luck, right? We've got hundreds here. Yeah, exactly. It could have been a lot easier there. But <laughs> we went with Jan Arden, who's a, she, she's a famous Canadian, I think it's like folk and country. I don't listen to her myself, but she's a big name there. And it was her old cabin which is oh. this massive luxury thing. Hmm. Yeah, it, it fit it well, albeit, you know, everyone's initial impression was, ah, oh, Cabin in the Woods movie. I'm like, damn it. Yeah, no, yeah, it's yeah. Everything Cabin in the Woods movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, Ian, Ian was detrimental in that. He, he really defined uh, a lot of that look, separating. There's kind of levels in the film. I won't ruin it, but a lot of stuff kind of descends into madness, quite literally. In the house, so yeah, defining those moments was key, especially when you're just limited to one location. It's you really have to lean on the script and the characters and the performance to keep you attached because you're staring at the same thing for quite a while. When you when you're talking about tonally with your DOP, is that him saying to you, "Look at these stills or or brief sequences from a film," or is it you saying, "I'm feeling like this is a kind of that film or this film yeah personally myself i i like to i have a heavy hand in a lot of things in there mm -hmm. and it's not too away uh from ian's brilliance but for me i had a lookbook coming in and i was very specific thing this is even down to the the level of saturation and contrast that i wanted to go for to give Ian the best idea of like this is the how the film should feel mm -hmm. and from there it's just the dialogue, really. He sees the location. He knows what's lightable. Um, you have to consider how many days you have to shoot. So something like uh, backlighting a character so they're always separated from the background, say, would be an extra step that could possibly screw up our days. So right there, you have to remove that element. So Ian was technically guiding the the film's hand to actually work with him in the production. Got you. Now, um you say it's a two-hander, so that puts a lot of weight on both um, Sarah Garcia as uh, Avery Malone and I'm guessing John Cassini is your other, you sort of, in your two, of the main two-hander. I mean, this is a larger cast for presumably other stuff, but they're your two main cast, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So your conversation as a director with those, um, how, how, I mean... You've got two people, obviously, who are protagonists and antagonists to each other, in a sense, if that's the last yeah. part of your drama. Um, how, did you, how did you deal with their relationship? Were they kept apart before the film started? Did you get them together? Was it, uh, did you prep, prep with them before? How did, how did you make that work for you? <laughs> I, wish, I wish I could keep them separated. But, uh, <laughs> no, on this budget, you kind of, you're, you're at the beck and call. These people were professionals at every bit more experience than I am. Yeah. But all this, yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of getting people in a room together and building the trust early. Because mm -hmm. from there I, I I respect the method acting, but at the same time I feel like if we're all professionals we could we could work together to get there. So John and Sarah had a great relationship. We all had a very open, close, friendly sort of rapport. Maybe even too much. <laughs> Maybe I should have cracked the whip a little bit more. Not that anything went bad. It was just, uh, I like to be friendly. I don't know. Canadian, maybe? Is that it? 
I don't know about that, but it's like I'm just thinking more about the. But I, I think there's, there's there's definitely. I mean, having spoken to a sort of number of uh, of directors on the podcast, I'm 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 yet to really speak speak to one that's the complete autocrat. I don't think autocrat works anymore in the 21st century. So while obviously friendly, this this there's degrees of friendly, but I think I think I think you can you can read friendly as a, as collaborative. I think. Yeah, coming to that, I I'm not an actor. I don't want to force any sort of method on them. Mm. But at the same time, I, I have to be there as a director. And part of that is establishing that trust that they, they know what I'm doing is right for the film and it's reciprocated, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it reminds me of there was a guy, a guy called Dominic Brunt who did a film called Bay and, um, and uh, Before Dawn. And it's played at Fright Fest in the past. And, and he, he talked about calling the calling the cast up before they even arrived on set and just said, look, I'll give you this much flexibility, but these things are not a given. If that's going to be a problem, then probably we shouldn't be on the film. And it's almost like, because we're all dealing in limited resources, we can't have everyone going, well, what about if I peel oranges for 10 minutes in this scene? Or what about if I do this? You know, it's like there's a there's a limit to what you want to bring, what you want them to bring, but you don't want to, you don't want to bring nothing uh, so that they just kind of do what you say. I suppose it's a, it's a fine balancing act, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I think it was... Francis Ford Coppola, Coppola, he um, he said, I believe it was eighty percent of your film is done in the casting, which is an absurd statement. But I think what he means is, if you cast the right people, you you have very little to do in way of forcing your hand as a director. And for me, that's how true fiction was. Had I cast someone else, I mean, there was um, for lack of a better term, there was a more known actor, a more experienced one that probably has a little bit of pull in the genre world that was in discussions with us. And sadly, I, I called them up and said, we were going to someone else. And the reason for that is that I knew at the heart of it, it would be a battle on set. It would be a conflict of his interpretation versus what I have for the film. So luckily, uh, Sarah and John were just a perfect fit right away. And it was quite effortless in trying to to massage it to that point of view where they were reflecting what I saw in the film. Can you think? Like I was going to say, can you think of a of a moment or two where 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 either of them or both of them even um, brought brought something to their character that that surprised you and you thought, no, that's the character I wanted, but I hadn't thought of even sort of pushing for that. I think originally I I had a very narrow view of what Caleb Conrad, John Cassini's character was. Okay, it was more. Yeah, it was more of a traditional Gregory Peck kind of like, ha gentleman. And okay. Yeah, and it kind of, it worked itself in my mind, how he should look, how he should talk. And John had a very different approach. I think just naturally as what he brings as an actor, um, like his own personality, which didn't match up with what I saw. And I was like, ah, it wasn't until I got on the set that I saw him handling the book, the typewriter, how he moved, how he sat. And I was like, Okay, John's Caleb Conrad could work. And the further we went in, the more I was like, of course John's, you know, interpretation of Caleb is going to work. Why didn't I see it like that? Why did I see it as this cookie cutter, you know, movie of the week sort of thing where the obvious casting choice was the best? It clearly wasn't. Okay, so you, you sort of saw it as almost like, here's my arch antagonist sort of mystery person. And then, and then he comes along and goes, what if I just make him more human? And then that's going to throw everybody, including the protagonist. <laughs> yeah, that was exactly it. Even my brothers who read the script, um, they, they gave me a response when they first saw John. They're like, 
oh, oh, is that? And they politely kind of gave a little bit of hesitation towards it. And I said, no, 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 watch some of these clips. And they're like, oh, he's perfect. So it's, it's funny how your initial impression may read one way until someone breathes life into it. And I think it's all in authenticity. John's a very good actor. So it felt real. It didn't feel put on. And isn't, and isn't, I mean, it's an amazing part of, 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 of the filmmaking process and sort of on, ongoing evidence that it is a genuine collaborative medium, isn't it? Completely, yeah. Uh, now, on, I'm, I'm seeing on your poster, it's got Burn Your Idols, which, uh, which is, um, I guess, an ongoing riff on the, uh, the, um, the idea of Kill Your Idols. Um, do, you, do you think um, that Avery... Uh, would 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 never want to meet her idol again, having gone through this film. <laughs> oh, I I want to say something cheeky, but it may be a spoiler. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's say she's uh, she's kind of become what she wanted to become going into it. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, look for, from a personal point of view, then have you have you did you draw on any experience of yourself? Have you met any of your idols? Uh, I can't say I've met anyone that would leave that impression on me if they spoiled it. Do you know what I mean? Like if I met Steven Spielberg and he was a jerk or something. I haven't met someone of that importance, but you meet the odd couple along the way. I've not, I can't I've not, I'm going to say I've not so much met, met someone who's been like awful to me, but they've kind of just been disinterested because obviously I'm just a journalist. I'm not a friend. And obviously, through the yeah. through the filters of just doing these pod, podcasts, and I've done you know magazine journalism in the past and stuff, you get to speak to people because you're interviewing them because they're promoting something. You're you're the you're the vehicle for them to promote it, but you're also a massive fan, and it completely throws you that they don't know you've been listening to their music for 15 years or whatever. It's kind of it's it's really weird. You kind of have to switch off that idea that you like them a lot and go actually let's let's, let's be very dry about this and talk about your work. Oh, exactly. It's such a bizarre relationship there. Because like you said, 15 years worth of you establishing a relationship with them and their art, which is very personal. Exactly. But they've, yeah, they've got nothing with you. So that is a, it's a weird, it's a sense of betrayal. But at the same time, you're like, no, wait, how can that be? Like, the guy's never even met me. And I guess that's something you were, I mean, that's a very universal truth, isn't it? What I'm talking about there. And I guess that's something you bring into to uh, Avery, Malone, Avery Malone's character for true fiction, in the sense of we we have our ideas of people, and then we meet them, and obviously you're you're taking it to the extreme with this idea, but but uh, but it is about that, isn't it? There is a there is a real version of someone that everyone gets to know, and then there's a version we imagine somebody's like because we like what they make. Exactly, and I, if you consider if you met Tom Cruise. Would you be more upset if Tom Cruise wasn't real with you as a person? Maybe he's a little bit uh, moody, but you would get the real Tom Cruise. Or would you prefer to have the false one that's smiling and slapping you on the back and really friendly, but you know it's empty? It's like there's no win, really. No. The person's too real who you thought they were, and if they're too false, you feel like they're not opening up. And I think that's a really interesting thing. It's an interesting avenue to because it's interesting on two levels because because like you said at the start there is there is just the the what there has been the kind of general thing in the media about the power play of that which is to say that someone has more power than the other one usually it's the famous person but also yeah. then there's the negative side of that which is 
which is, goes beyond the disappointment of going, well, they were just a bit dull. I mean, that's hardly front-page news, that, you know, creative person is really just a bit dull. Um, but when somebody's a famous person and uses that to manipulate people, then it becomes interesting, doesn't it, in terms of obviously trying to develop a drama around it. Yeah, completely. Because now you're you're at the beck and call of someone that has immense power in so many facets. And um, when you when you was uh, when you were shooting this, uh, like I think what you said before was you said you, you had this location plus you then built a studio for what or, or stu- uh, you built a sort of small studio thing that was your kind of main the main part of the the main part of the single location as it was. That I've understood that right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, so when you when you were looking at what was on the page and what you were trying to achieve, and I, and I, I think you were intimating that there's the sort of moments where you maybe go a bit outside of just two people in a room, and it maybe goes a bit more a bit more mad, for want of a better word. Um, how how did you how did you meld those to get those elements together where you've got what what you would say is straight drama, <laughs> i.e., two people conflicts happening, we resolve it or we escalate it. <laughs> to then the kind of stuff that beco- that goes, oh my God, it's going crazy. Whose mind are we in? Where are we going? Kind of thing. So your question is, how did I, how did I marry the two extremes into one narrative? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess I was like, that was the fun of it is, um, how can I best explain it? Because like genre, genre has expectations. Mm-hmm. You know, this has to happen in a horror film or it should to feel right. And um, on this one, because I pulled so many things from different subgenres of the bigger genre of horror or psychological thrillers, I really felt like if I just stayed the course, plotted this out on paper, uh, like I said, in a very pragmatic way, mm-hmm. that I could find these spots to really let those subgenres flourish. So in a way, you're kind of cheating because you're a, you're abstracting what is a very common genre, being horror, by putting all these elements in there and it, it offsets people because they don't know what's coming next. And that was a huge reception on the film is that it's unpredictable. Just when you think you figure it out, something else happens. And I think that it holds the narrative like glue because the audience doesn't have time to kind of break it down or get a, a foothold on things. Cause you're slowly feeding them enough to give, to bring them in closer, but then you turn the table and then you do it again, come closer and then you turn the table. So I think that married the more realistic drama, the more um, outside of the genre of horror elements with psychological thriller or the slasher aspect, or there's almost a ghostly aspect of things. It's really hard, I find, to I say take two genres, say comedy and horror. Yeah. I think that's one of the hardest genres to ever execute. Because is it is it too funny that it's not scary, or is it... You know, is it halfway? You kind of have to pick one and then add a little bit of flourish on top of it. Got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I would say something like um, Shaun of the Dead, Mm -hmm. to me, is very much a comedy, buddy comedy, with a little bit of horror. Yeah, I would go as far as to say it's a rom-com with zombies. (laughs) Yeah, rom-com, bro-com. And then you have American World in London. Funny, I'm choosing a lot of UK-style films here. But uh, that one's very much a horror in my mind with a little bit of comedy. Yeah, 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 I get your point. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Because it's, it's true. There's um, American Wealth has some truly horrifying moments, whereas Sean Dead doesn't have any. Um, so, yeah, I get, I get what you're saying. Um, wh- when, you were, um, when you were looking at what was on the page and what you were trying to shoot, um, what, 
what for you was your kind of, I guess, fist punch in the air, we did it moment uh, in terms of what you got in the camera? Um, the, 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 see, you know, because obviously the big achievement is you've made a film. I mean, I don't want to, I'm not trying to undermine that. But <clears throat> when you were looking at the breakdown over the shoot, there must have been bits of it that looked harder than others, as it were. So what for you, What can you can you give it an example of, of like something you kind of, in, innovation got you over the constraint or an idea late in the process that saved the day, you know, anything like that that springs to mind? Hmm. I think truly uh, it was such a well-produced movie under Julian Black Animal. Mm -hmm. that we actually had we had a lot of things prepared in advance that was a huge thing for me is prepping things before we got there so we could avoid the mistakes um so there really isn't too much in that way of it but there was an instance where a lot of the shooting days was broken down by location and by location i mean the bedroom her bedroom that's day one yeah. uh, his bedroom is day two but it just so happens in his bedroom there's oh e easily maybe six or seven separate little scenes that vary from him typing in a robe at his desk to a brutal scene of violence. And that, I think, I can't say that was a 24-hour day, but it was it must have been close. And that alone, it was just like, yeah, coffee, Red Bull, and short tempers. <laughs> but we got it, and that one blew me away because there was it wasn't just a lot to shoot. It was a lot to shoot, plus special effects, plus a range of emotion, plus a huge turning point in the film. So I think we muscled through that one. And that, I wish I could say there was innovation on how we solved it, but we just muscled straight through it. No, no, I was just throwing out ideas, really, as to sort of what might, you know, the, the variables that can happen. But the idea of everyone being at the end of the tether and it needing to be done and getting it done is, is just as much an achievement as something that involved, you know, arguably reinventing the wheel at the, at the last minute or something. Um, there was one instance, sorry to cut you off there. Um, yeah, go on, go on. One of the, the things when I saw the house was when you write something, obviously a very clear vision of what it should be, a Victorian slash Gothic mansion, if you could find it. So I had to, I had to work with what we had and the best that we had was this cabin. But the thing is, if you were in the cabin, you would think how in the world would you ever, run and hide from someone in this thing. It's not big enough. So the, we, we had to really kind of work with the art department. And this is probably would answer your question better. We had to solve the problem of having something too small to theoretically fit the narrative. So we had to expand upon it, change the location corridor to look like something else. So we kind of made like false en entrances and, you know, there should be a door here in the story, but it's a wall. So we're going to shoot it this way and she'll cut off camera and pick up, you know, in a whole different part of the, the house dressed in a new way. So that was a lot of fun kind of mapping out this fake house with what you have and how you could turn different rooms or hallways into something else entirely. Oh, that's perfect. So yeah, no, that, that is really sort of, that's where, where, you know, imagination at work there, isn't it? Cause then is the, does the camera lie? Of course it fucking does. <laughs> Exactly. That was a lot of fun. Um, now, when you're uh, when you've got the, the film in the camera, you know, um, and you know the script is long, is is sort of a distant memory of a challenge. Then you're in the edit suite. What 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 revealed itself in the edit that wasn't evident at scripting and during production? What was there anything new and exciting that emerged that was like, wow, yeah, look, we didn't see that coming. Well, I I edit my own film, so. 
I kind of I see everything on the day. I know what I have going in. But as far as this go, I, it's so funny, and I learned it on previous films. Is always keep the camera rolling, always give buffer off the top of your take, always give buffer on the tail end, because some of the shots that I used, like I looked at the takes in full for one scene, and I was like, I don't have it. I don't have that moment I need. But then I looked at the beginning of the take, and the character was making faces, uh, like the actor was making faces. And for a split second, it was the reaction I needed. So I was like, oh, that's perfect. And there's so many little things in the film where you're like, people don't know I haven't said action yet. Or I said cut, and then the actor relaxed, and they kind of did their own thing. And there was a moment there that I used in the finished product. And it's happened on every one of my films. Wow. So that's, yeah. <laughs> I feel like you pulled the curtain back on, on Oz there and let me look at the wizard. <laughs> <laughs> Those are really lines. And I, I kind of fear having another editor. Like there's so many brilliant people out there that do it better than me. But if they don't find those things, do you use something that's subpar or do you know what I mean? Like you kind of have to trust that everyone's going to watch the footage as you would from front to back. Got you, got you. Now that's, uh, that's, that's it's sort of, it's, it's an interesting journey for, so you're kind of prepping yourself for maybe not having everything you need by getting as much as you can while you've got the time to get it while not making it extra scenes to do. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's little tricks I learned in film school where they said, say if you're shooting three people having a discussion at a table, mm -hmm. one person talking to the next person, the next, if you have the time, keep the camera on someone and ask them, okay, look right, look left, pick at your food, roll your eyes. You know, you kind of tell them to go through these really contrived moments, right? but you wouldn't, if you need that moment, say for a cutaway, because it's just not working how you're editing it, it's a godsend. And it's really funny that people don't always do that. Obviously, time's a factor, but... No, no, no. You, you, you refer, you, I remember listening to an interview with uh, Jeremy Saulnier talking about The Green Room, which obviously another another film that, that uses the pragmatic choice of a single location. And a, and a lot of the film happens between a door and, a, and the green, literally the green room. And... He, he was talking about the challenge of trying to get the coverage of seven people talking in a room. Mm -hmm. Still being a huge challenge because you've got to make sure the audience is able to understand their reactions. Or there's the, I think there's the family scene in Whiplash, which is, which, which is kind of probably the least technical, the least cinematic moment in the film. But actually, there's a lot of work goes into that because you've got six people sat on a table. Um, and it can, and if you don't do enough, it looks a bit boring. So you've got to get everything, haven't you? to make it interesting. Exactly. Those are such uh, deceivingly hard moments to capture. I, I loathe getting multiple people in a room and having an exchange like that because, my God, the coverage is so – it's a mess. But it's – we'll interject real quick. Jeremy Saulnier, uh, you mentioned, absolutely adore that man. And he was very much um, – Blue Ruin was kind of like a, a visual aid as far as the technical aspects – that I wanted to convey to Ian, our DP. Mm -hmm. well, not only that, but our uh, our main producer, and he's also an actor in it, um, Julian Black Antelope, was in Hold the Dark. Oh, was um, he? Yeah, he, he was Chi on the uh, the fellow that guns down all the policemen in the. Jeez, that's looked... an amazing moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so he was in that, and they actually, Jeremy himself shot in the same studio that we were at, same office. Uh, that I was lucky enough to use. 
So it was a really weird kind of mix of things because I came off being just a fanboy of this guy. And, uh, and then sure enough, Julian was there and he's like, Oh, wait until you see the film. I'm in it. And yeah, working in the same studio. It was a really weird coming together of a lot of things that meant a lot to me at the time. That's a nice, happy accident. <laughs> well, look, sir, let's remind people then, when can people see your film, True Fiction at Frightfest? I believe it is August 24th at 1 p.m. And I think that's at the Leicester Discovery One screen. Indeed, indeed. Well, look, all I can say now is thank you very much for giving us your time on the podcast. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Thank you.